skeptic in the room is not going to want to go through this question. But a favorite examples of this is, you know, the the blister pack packaging that you get when you get headphones. It's like impossible to open. It turns out that a can opener is a really good tool to use on it. You know, a knife is impossible. Ripping it is impossible. A can opener is great. So what if you had to use a can opener to solve this problem? As, you know, someone asked that question when they figured that out. If you had to use a different tool, how could you do it? Another one, if you could use science fiction future technology, what could you do? Favorite example of this is the Freakonomics guys. They actually got a lot of Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is episode five of our Smart Cuts mini-series with the author of the book Smart Cuts, Shane Snow. Shane, can you tell us a little bit about what we're going to jump into today? So I'm really excited about this one because when people think about innovation, or when we talk about the phrase lateral thinking, which is the subject of this whole series, a lot of people jump straight to the part about coming up with great, clever, creative ideas. You know, innovation is about thinking differently. That means different ideas. But as you know, we've been setting the groundwork for this for like four episodes now. And, and that's really because if you frame things right, if you set up this scientific method process that we've been talking about, if you set that up right, then you can often just see innovative ideas without even trying. So the hard work really is in a lot of that thinking that becomes that comes before everything. But I'm excited because today we're going to talk about actual ways to come up with unique, creative, clever, innovative hypotheses. And in the next episode, we'll talk about shooting holes in those so that you can disprove the ones that won't work and, and really get to something real. But I'm excited today because we're going to talk about exploring creative ideas. Well, let, let's start there. Jump. Let's jump into hypothesis. Okay, so... We've been framing this whole idea of problem solving, which is really, you know, why use lateral thinking? What is innovation even for? It's about solving problems, right? And solving problems better than before. So we've been framing that whole thing in terms of the scientific method. And now we're at the hypothesis stage. So to recap for anyone that, uh, that is coming in just right now or, or needs a refresher, scientific method starts with observations, getting to the real underlying first principles of what's going on. And then based on that, asking the right questions so that you, you're barking up the wrong tree or climbing up the wrong the right hill. Oh man, I'm really brutally destroying these metaphors. You're barking up the right tree <laughs> and not going out marching up the wrong hill. And so that when you get to the idea stage, you've set yourself up to come up with ideas about the right things. So today we're gonna to talk about that process but I think it really helps to frame this kind of problem solving in terms of hypotheses and not in terms of ideas. So a hypothesis is something that is easy to let go of because by definition, you're framing it as something that's flimsy and detached from you. Your hypothesis is this thing that's, you could say it's yours, but by definition, this is something that might not work out. And a lot of times in just our work and our lives, we keep our ideas when we say this is my idea the emphasis really is on the my part you know this is your idea so it's hard for you to let go of this is my idea so my ego or my valid validity is on the line or even worse the validity of the group i represent is on the line if it's my idea or, or an idea that i'm putting forth on behalf of us 
And, uh, and that leads us to do, you know, mental gymnastics that, that often, you know, is in the service of winning for our idea, not winning for the truth. So, so really, that's, that's the first, I think, main point with this stage is when you're exploring ideas, frame them as hypotheses. And that helps you to keep the goal in mind, which is answering the question, rather than the, you know, kind of coming back to over and over again, your idea and the goal being to, to be right about your idea. Our job as innovators is to find better ways of doing things, not to validate our ideas. So that's just the, and it may sound like a simple, subtle, maybe even like stupid distinction, but it helps if you prime yourself to be able to let go of things when you're trying to use lateral thinking. So hypothesis is a way just invoking that word. And even I do this all the time too. I will back up in conversations and, and actually reframe things in terms of a hypothesis. So I'll, I'll say, well, I think blah, blah, blah. And then I'll say, my hypothesis is blah, blah, blah. Because then it becomes easier for me to let go of. And it also really, even if you think you're pretty good at, at not attaching yourself to ideas, it reinforces to whoever you're talking to this subtle distinction that, oh, you know what, Shane is talking about hypothesis here, so I can push back. Or so this isn't, I don't need to be careful about bruising his identity when, you know, when we explore or handle this idea. And, you know, the whole point of lateral thinking is handling things from different angles, turning them around in our minds, um, looking at them differently. It's harder to do that if you are really attached to looking at it a certain way because this is your precious idea. You know, I, I love that practical tool of backing up, you know, I think that says a lot about somebody's character as well, when they're willing to back up. I think about a friend, she and I were in a course together, we've known each other for years, and she decided she, she wanted to stop exaggerating. And she was willing to like mm. sacrifice personal image to stop and say, you know what, actually, that isn't true. It wasn't 84, it was 50. You know, and it's like, her commitment to the truth became so inspiring that I started asking myself, you know, do I want to overcome my exaggeration addiction? <laughs> okay. But I love that. Uh, anyway, she just such such a great example for me. So to me, you hearing you say that instead of saying, I think saying, actually, you know what my hypothesis is, or my best guess is, or, you know, something that now makes it socially acceptable for people to see it differently than me without us having to, invite conflict or something i like that way of framing it making it socially acceptable because especially if you know a lot of people listening to this probably are in a leadership position so the power dynamic is in your favor and it may be socially risky to you know to disagree or to you know to say well the nuance here is different it, it may be risky to, to push back at all or even to do anything but say yes and, and so you want to set yourself up for the maximum possibility of arriving at the truth and you cut off potential for that if, if you have to, if you create the social dynamic or reinforce the social dynamic that, it, that is riskier to push back on it. I guess it's not even just pushing back on. It's just like giving permission to, you know, to let the idea be separate from you so that, uh, that you can play with it differently, look at it differently. And uh, yeah, so, and a lot of that, I mean, it gets into the second main point I, I wanted to bring up before we really dig into the meat of things is again, to mix metaphors. I don't know what I'm doing today, dig into some meat. But one of the big problems with brainstorming as we, we typically 
sort of think about it or practice it in groups are is the social and power dynamic that's afoot when you have a group of people coming up with ideas together. You know, the, the typical way we think of brainstorming that goes all the way back to the 40s with the head of BBDO who wrote this book on how creativity, if you want to like really do it fast, think of it like storming the castle, have all your people like run at the castle with their swords or whatever. And that's what you should do. That's brainstorming is doing that. This, the, you know, the practice that we use, this ritual in our companies is, oh, we need to solve a problem. Let's gather a group of people around a table and say, throw out ideas. Every idea is a good idea. Nothing's bad. Let's write them all down on the whiteboard. And there's a lot of research that shows that this is, first of all, inferior to individuals doing that themselves and then combining their ideas because it gives you more time and space to explore if you can do it on your own. But it's also rife with these social dynamics where even if the boss says, you know, it is totally safe to say anything, you know that some things are not safe to say. That, you know, if you say, well, okay, let me put my gun on the table. If everything's safe, then let me pull the gun out of my bag and put it on the table while we have this conversation. Like that, you know, this is an extreme thing. But there's some things that are the equivalent of that. and You know that socially. Like you can't bring up that the boss's wife is ugly during this brainstorming session or holy cow you know things are gonna gonna go awry so you know these are both really extreme examples of of what you could do but it proves the point that not everything is safe in a social setting especially the more people in the group and i think you know if you're with the boss and and you're able to feel safe to have a one-on-one conversation you can go places pretty pretty deep and substantially that you can't in a group and even besides the insults and, you know, and weapons thing, if, if I'm afraid that something I say might be misconstrued by someone else or used against me in the course of exploring, you know, brainstorming, I say something that someone's like, who, you know, in 2020, you can't really say that. If I'm afraid that that's going to leave the room and then now rumors will spread or, you know, this is the reason why Twitter is such an unsafe place. It's so psychologically unsafe to put something out there, to go out on a limb, because someone out there is going to find something wrong with it and make it personal about you. So all that's to say, brainstorming has all these problems in the way that we normally think of it. And the the first big one is this social dynamic. And a lot of times, actually, it's the bosses or whoever has the power, their words don't quite match what the reality is. They say, oh, it's safe you know, to say anything but but they frame things as so you know we need to solve this problem i have this idea how are we going to do it you know it's even getting ahead of ourselves like we've been talking about not asking the right question but no one is willing to say well you know maybe that's not the right question because the the social dynamic sort of prevents it and then you don't want to create that sort of ugly ripple effect you know as i'm sitting here thinking i guess my first question is in addition to setting the example right? Ourselves trying to, I think you said something like, hold our hypotheses lightly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's hypotheses. I don't know how to say that word. But uh, hypotheses. Right? Um, to, to hold those guesses lightly, and to let people know that we are, maybe the way we frame the meeting, or even the order event of, hey, can everybody come up with your own first, and then we'll get together and talk about them, things like that. I guess my next question is, what else can we do to help, whether it's our staff or, say, our business partners, right? Maybe they're a peer. What else can we do to give them the feeling of intellectual or psychological safety so that they don't need to hold on to their ideas so tightly? You know, I get that setting examples absolutely probably the best one. But are there any other things that you can think of that can help other people not attach their personal self-worth to whether people like their idea or not? 
There's a couple things that come to mind. One, I think I may have mentioned before in a previous episode, but it's this idea of rewards and rewards that reinforce certain behavior. So if you only praise people when their idea is right or good, then you reinforce this idea that you will be rewarded for being right. And so that will make you fight harder to be right, even if that's at the expense of finding the best ideas or finding the truth. And so another, there's this modeling the behavior that we've been talking about of, you know, holding onto your hypotheses lightly, even other kind of examples of intellectual humility saying I could be wrong before you express an opinion, admitting when you have changed your mind and actually make going out of your way to publicly say that like, oh, I, you know, that actually changes my mind about this. Like, that's all really great role model behavior. But then there's the, the sort of behavior that's not really about saying it, it's about reinforcing it when someone says something that pushes the ball forward or they add something, they contribute something that, uh, that helps in the exploration, praising that, even if it's not the right idea. And, and in sort of the post-mortem process of you know, reflecting on, which I think is something we don't do enough, you know, we've, we've now come up with the plan that we're going to test. You know, this is the hypothesis that we think is right. So we're going to test it. We're going to move forward. Doing, holding a little mini postmortem of how we got here and giving credit to all of the, the stages in that story to the people that helped push it along. You know, when Jess said this thing about special forces soldiers, you know, and, and it was totally the wrong direction. But, but the fact that he's always bringing up the special forces thing actually really helped us to, you know, to think about this differently. So, like, that was cool. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm picking on you since you pick on yourself about that, those. But those examples are so good. But going through that process and, and even... You can even do it in a cheesy way that, that actually works, going around the table and saying, and this is how, you know, I, Shane, thank you for, you know, when you brought this up. And, you know, at this part, when we were in the process, you know, Sarah went and collected all of this data and that was helpful. Acknowledging everything that goes into that team effort, I think is, is really helpful for reinforcing that it's not just like, oh, we're rewarding just because he's the one who came up with the right answer at the end after all of this. It's like, you know, in marketing, we talk about last click attribution. Are you familiar with this one? Yeah, it's like your Google ad, you know, someone clicks on your Google ad and then they buy your product. And so you're like, wow, the Google ad is uh, the thing that, that works. Let's cancel all other marketing activities. But it's like the person clicked on the Google ad because they recognize your brand because they saw the TV commercial, you know, and or because they've been reading your blog forever and then they happen to click on the ad and, you know, so it's a, that sort of thing I think is really helpful. And I think also the thing being explicit about our goal here is to solve problems and to, you know, to get the whole group to the best outcomes. Our goal is not to be collaborative. And I think this is where a lot of good intentions kind of actually get in the way. A lot of leaders, you know, they're like, I want my team to know that I, I am including them. So we're going to gather everyone together and then reinforce my ideas or reinforce my favorite person's ideas or, or whatever. And people, you know, they understand what you're doing, that you're trying to be collaborative, but like the goal for them is to support you as the leader and to support the team rather than to solve the problem in the best possible way. So, and I just had uh, an experience with a, an editor I'm working with on a, a big creative project that basically in the service of not fouling up the relationship with this supervisor who's caught in the middle of things, 
decided to basically go with the crappy version of the project because it was going to keep the peace in the group. And uh, and that's disappointing to everyone involved, but it's going to, you know, save this editor a lot of grief and actually save all of us a lot of grief in collaborating with his supervisor. I'm being vague on purpose because I can't really share the details, but it's like, if that's the goal is to keep the peace, then people will behave accordingly. But if as the boss, you are constantly making sure people understand the goal is not like, I'll keep the peace. I'll make sure that things don't get personal as the boss. Like I'll be monitoring that and I'll, you know, we'll, we'll do what we need to, to make sure we know we love each other. And then it's not personal, but the goal is to solve the problem. So those reinforcing behaviors, I think are, are really what speaks louder than the words. Well, can you talk about this idea of like expanding, expanding all the possibilities and then whittling down to the right things? Yeah. So you're, you're getting at, I think, a distinction that gets lost and maybe was part of the original incarnation of what brainstorming would be. But we, we often think of brainstorming as come up with a giant list of ideas and pick the best one. But what often happens is we come up with a giant list of ideas and don't follow up and we don't or we don't refine or we simply pick the best one of those ideas. And that's, you know, if you don't have the best idea in that pool, then you're going with something inferior in a good problem solving process or process of coming up with hypotheses that can then be tested should be a little bit more thoughtful than that. And so I like to think of it as two, two broad steps. One is building the pool of your options. So expanding the pool of hypotheses, making sure that you're not just going with your first idea and then running with it. It's, it's actually giving... Uh, the the challenge wide berth for exploration so the expanding stage it really could actually sort of manifest as this come up with a list of ideas but you want to keep going from that list but then after you've expanded you've explored as much as as you can you do need to whittle down that pool of ideas and this whittling down part is it should be a debate it should be a combination i'll talk specifically about some you know ways to do this here in a bit, but just from a theoretical standpoint, uh, th this is the basic process. Really brainstorming in quotes should be two steps, expanding the pool of hypotheses and whittling them down. And if you want to have the best pool of hypotheses, you need to do your homework. You need to do a lot of research. You need to have an idea of what you know, you're even going for. You need to know those observations. You need to be really clear on the question and you need to draw widely from different thinkers. And you know, if you're doing a group thing, you need people who think differently. If you're doing a solo thing, then you need to look at lots of different sources of information so that you can maximize the chance of expanding the pool. Uh, but then you know, really effective brainstorming should be more like workshopping than brain dumping. So if you frame it that way, so let's say you and I are trying to expand a pool of hypotheses. If I throw out an idea, you know, let's say it's for for your your real estate, you know, investments vehicles. If I throw out an idea, we don't just write it down. We take a minute for you to build off of that. So if I say, you know, there's a lot of drug dealer houses in Colombia that have been foreclosed on that, you know, we could get for cheap and maybe reconvert them into something awesome. And then you could say, well, let's explore that for a minute. You know, here's the problems with that, you know, potentially, or, you know, what's even better than that, there's a lot of like cathedrals in Colombia that are even cheaper real estate. And that's something that we can convert. You know, I'm, I'm doing this purposely with a field that I know nothing about uh, so that people don't focus on the content of what I'm saying. But it's like us spending that minute to sort of workshop that idea before we put down on paper, you know, the notes we want to we sort of play with later. 
that is better than just being like drug dealer house is great moving on so this is where a group can be better than an individual is this exploring and workshopping rather than just storming it's like in monty python you ever see monty python and the holy grail yeah, yeah of course. i i could quote large portions of it in high school and still can today <laughs> so so you probably know the scene better there's a scene right where they're attacking a castle and all they do is they run up to it and start hitting it with their swords right that's not a good plan it's not a good process you know but if one of them runs up hits the castle with the sword confirms that it's made out of something impenetrable and then the next person says you know that's not going to work but let me stand on your shoulders so that we can like hoist lancelot up through the the you know the window or whatever that's a better process than than just running at it and and so again analogies imperfect don't take the content of the analogies but think about that you know storming is the wrong metaphor exploring and workshopping are are at least more accurate metaphors for what you want to do and, and, you know, if you're working from that small pool of hypotheses, you're exploring only in one direction, then you'll be limited. So you want to expand the pool. You want to explore in lots of directions. And that's, I mean, all of this is the entree to, uh, you know, to the actual lateral thinking thing that a lot of people, you know, are, are hoping for, I think, or that it, they expect. What are the different ways to explore so that you can come up with ideas that are, are not obvious uh, to everyone? You know, it's interesting to me, and and maybe we'll we'll be short on this one, but I guess one question that I would have is for folks who maybe haven't spent as much time in this, maybe they don't consider themselves as creative and sometimes they think this is a big waste of time. You know, shouldn't we just do what we know the next thing to do is and we can worry about the future in the future sometime. You know, maybe they're like a reluctant participant for this or something, right? We all get told things like there's no there's no bad ideas, whatever, right? But you can tell from so-and-so's arm crossing and eye rolling that they haven't necessarily subscribed to that, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, or, or they're jumping to, I don't see how we can do that, so we shouldn't even put it on the board. You know, like those, mm -hmm. any, any thoughts about how you can invite the other members of the group who maybe are a little bit more resistant to like, what are all these airy-fairy ideas? Why do we have to put them all down? I Like, why are we even considering possible possibilities we can't do? You know, like the negative Nancy in the room kind of thing. Any ideas yeah. on, on helping them be able to, like, suspend their disbelief temporarily? I'm so glad you asked this question. So there's a couple of things. I, and I, I think I answer all of your questions with there's a couple of things. But the the first one is... We need to recognize that we need that person. That is a role that is very valuable to have someone play. And if someone is authentically that way, you don't have to assign them to be devil's advocate. That's even more valuable because they're not just doing going to you know play devil's advocate to humor you or to be collaborative. They're going to really do it. And, and so the first thing is, as a leader, thanking them for that. That's part of that thing that I was talking about earlier of, you know, if it wasn't for Bob saying, well, you know, having some disagreement on that, then we wouldn't have thought harder. You know, we wouldn't have considered the real issues uh, that we need to. And so I, I think thanking them for pushback and then thanking them for doing that is is valuable. And so it's, it's you know, you're asking how do you get them to, to participate and to play along? Actually, that their way to participate is to not play along, right? Uh, that's the participation that you're valuing and making sure that that's clear. Now, if everyone is like that, that's going to be miserable. And that behavior can derail things. Yeah, I guess oh, my ahead. question is, how do you help them from shutting down their team members too early? Where yeah. maybe they've got some authority, maybe they got some influence, and they're like, 
their level of skepticism and maybe almost harshness because they're not as people oriented an individual, right? Is keeping mm -hmm. the group from throwing their ideas up because they don't want to be torn to shreds kind of a thing. Yeah. This is where my opinion is you shouldn't have a group meeting for that. Like that person should not be in the meeting where you're trying to explore, where you're trying to expand the pool. That person should be in the meeting where you're trying to whittle the pool or even better, that should be a one-on-one -on -one conversation with you and them. If you know that that person is going to play that role rather than have them influence the social dynamic and cause people to hold back or to you know act differently, you sit down with them, you schedule time and say, I want you to poke holes in these things that we're talking about. I want your collaboration in this process specifically on this. And you go in and maybe you include someone else, you know, other people can be included, but they need to know that this is what we're doing. We're having Bob tear this to shreds so that that doesn't interfere with the, the expanding exploration part. Uh, and I even think that actually in, I would dare say in most cases, unless you have a group that all is extremely comfortable with whatever happens and, and will continue talking even after someone does put the gun on the table, unless you have that group, I actually think it's better to, if you're the, the leader, you're the one in on the hook for whatever problem it is to be solved or whatever is your brainstorming, to go one-on-one -on -one to people and have really deep conversations and explorations with those individuals. You're the keeper of the, the notes and the log and the history and all of that. And you're using, you play their hypotheses or ideas or pushback off each other from, coming from you. So I go into the meeting with you and I've just had this brutal meeting with Bob about all the things that are wrong. And I ask you to help me with some of these things, with some of these questions. You know, a leader that is really good at, at dealing with people and getting them to feel comfortable and open up and all of that, and, and also approaches these conversations from, I need your help, is, is someone that has, will open up more possibilities than if you have a room where, you know, someone could derail things. I actually think that one of the most heartbreaking things that you see over and over again in business is when the group is excited and then the person the one person destroys the enthusiasm by bringing up something that you know that isn't an opportune or shuts things down so don't have them in that meeting you want to have the crazy you know sit on bouncy balls meeting like not that that's necessarily going to work either like but if you, you have the really creative people from extreme ends of uh, you know perspectives and you tell them to do their homework and they do all that, they come up with their ideas and then you want to workshop together, just don't include Negative Nancy. Negative Nancy is the next step. And, and actually, they could be grateful that uh, you are use it, having them be a specific step after all of that nonsense, you know, according to them. That's, uh, I think that's a way to, to harness that rather than, than let it become sort of this sad story. Dan, I feel like this is like brainstorming heresy that, you know, <laughs> It doesn't have to be in front of a whiteboard with the whole group, you know, that there are people that could be uninvited to a meeting, you know, it, it's interesting, this idea of like, if we really are serious about the truth, if we really are serious about the outcome, more than holding hands and singing Kumbaya and giving eighth, eighth place ribbons for everybody for <laughs> participation, right? You know, like, people could have some emotions about that. And do we have the courage of the as a leader to have the one on one with the one on one with somebody about their emotions in service of what's going to get us the best truth here? And, you know, the everybody holds hands and everybody's the same and we all have to do this, you know, in the yeah. socially nice way. What's funny is I actually think it's nicer to not annoy and, and it's it's almost 
a misdiagnosis to refer to them as negative Nancy. Okay. Yeah. But you know, it's, it's not flattering to do that. Right. But there are those individuals, my, my best friend, my brother, my dad, who can walk into situations and like they, you don't have to ask them what's wrong with the situation. Their brain already picks that up. As soon as you're explaining an idea to them, what's wrong with it is already occurring to them, right? <laughs> yep. And, you know, it's like my wife with all my entrepreneurial ideas that didn't work over like <laughs> whatever, 18 years of marriage now. Do you know what I mean? Like she's like, oh, yeah. one of these again, right? And and so it's like, it's annoying to her when I'm like, when I'm throwing out these crazy ideas and maybe we should partner with Richard Branson and start a spaceship company too, you know, <laughs> right? Whereas when I've worked something really through and then I'm coming to her and I'm framing as like, hey, I'm really trying to get somewhere serious about this. Can you do me a favor? I'm not looking for you to tell me I can't do this, but can you help me maybe spot my own blind spots here? They actually are yeah. like blowing on their fingernails, rubbing them on the shirt. Well, I am good at that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. They, and they, it's, they recognize that you, you, you want their help and, and that you appreciate that they're bringing that. And uh, rather than, you know, that what we often do, which is we act annoyed. And I think it also plays into this, you know, what is the goal here? Is the goal to collaborate? Is the goal to solve problems? I think that a lot of times we include people in our, you know, problem solving process in ways that they interpret as, oh, he's just trying to, you know, persuade us that, you know, whatever it is that he ends up doing had our input, you know, that it's like, and we talked about this before, right? There's a difference between what worked. Yeah. There's a difference between what can work for persuasion and what can work for solving problems. Like when we talk about analogies, analogies are great for persuasion and very faulty for for getting down to the the nuanced truth of things. And I think in the same way, a lot of group exercises or meetings or presentations are used better for persuasion than they are for problem solving. And uh, so, you know, use the, the formats for the things that they're best for, and also uses the wrong word, but tap into the people for the parts of the process where they can uniquely help the most and recognize that. And they will thank you rather than be annoyed by, you know, you always have these dumb ideas and you being annoyed by them thinking the ideas are always dumb. You have a crazy friend or partner or collaborator or someone who's willing to indulge even the most ridiculous stuff, explore with them and then whittle down with the other people. Well, and I think I just didn't have the ego strength in the past to have people disagree with me because I wanted to solve the problem, but I also wanted to be, re- I really, really wanted to be seen as the smart guy who solved the problem. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And that second agenda, it's like, you know, you ever seen somebody try to ride two skateboards, like works out <laughs> fine for a little bit and then they end up on the street. You know yeah, what I mean? yeah. Right? Like. <laughs> My, my secondary agenda of maintaining my, this image I wish everybody believed about me just totally undermines the process. And then I get angry when they don't think that I'm the smartest guy ever, when they're pointing out something mm-hmm. that's obvious to them. And uh, anyways, it's frustrating all the way. And I think for me, it took just unfortunately pretty painful failures, very painful failures multiple times for me to start to become more interested in spotting the problems up front. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a a huge relief when you're no longer on the hook for having all the answers and being right. When you're just on the hook for shepherding a process that can get to the truth, that is a lot less personal pressure. That's actually super true, isn't it? When you, 
the pressure to be a genius really sucks actually God, yeah. <laughs> if, yeah if your only pressure is to be like the most curious explorer like oh, that's pretty mm -hmm. easy you know yeah yeah well it's it's not easy it's not easy to do but the the it's easy to handle sort of internally right yeah what i mean is the pressure about being seen as doing it wrong <laughs> it yeah, goes yeah. way down when when yeah. there's not a wrong way to continue to be like as long as you're continuing yep. to be curious and continuing to seek the truth from yourself or anyone else like there's no there's no like chess match to have everybody see it as your idea or you're the smart one like man that's great yeah well okay let's get to the exciting stuff i i feel like over these past episodes and even today we've been given so many tools for the tool belt for when we actually get to the lateral thinking let's let's talk about exploring laterally okay so there's the the basic process is similar to a thought experiment only it's not an experiment it's a thought exploration so what you want to do if you are trying to come up with hypotheses that uh, you wouldn't normally think of you want to get beyond the obvious then you need to ask questions that force you to do that so in the very first episode of this mini series i talked about the puzzle of you're driving a car in the woods and there's three people in the rain you have one spare seat in the car which one do you pick up you know the the person who saved your life the little old lady or the man or woman of your dreams and uh, you know and the solution to the problem was uh, the best solution uh, that i've come up with at least is you get out of the car and then you have your friend drive the old lady home and then you stay in the rain with the man or woman of your dreams the, that is you know it's a puzzle but it's it's best answered when you approach the problem from a different angle than it's set up so so far, we've been uh, talking about setting up, you know, the, the broadest possible set of angles for you to come up with potential solutions to a problem. So in the, the car story, it would be we've now gotten you out of the car. We've now removed the requirement of only helping one person and of you driving. So we're, we're down to the basics and we've asked the question, how do we help the most number of people possible? And so now we're at the, what are all the potential ways we could do this stage? And so the best way that I've come up with over the years is give yourself a battery of questions that force you to explore different angles of thinking, to solving the problem. So not thought experiments, but thought explorations and these sort of forcing function questions. And they kind of boil down to two categories. One is this sort of why not think of it this way. So this improv comedy, everything goes, and this requires you to suspend all judgment, including moral judgment for a minute. And, uh, and we'll get at a couple of questions that are very specifically amoral. So this is again, exploring before, before whittling down. And then there's the what if types of questions. And so this is kind of a, a starting, starting a debate. What if this were true? How would we, we reframe this, this problem? So all of these are in service of generating potential um, and, uh, and hypotheses that then you can pull back. You know, you come up with this crazy hypothesis then you whittle it back to something that is is more aligned with what you're trying to do that's more aligned to the question so basically there's a lateral thinking exploration question tree that i like to go through and uh, i have like 15 questions that i like the most but there's endless possible questions but the point is to get you to think of different ways of attacking you know the the problem and and we can go through these as uh, as fast or slow as you want so you know with examples if you want and there's kind of two categories of these even that i like um and uh, you know they they are a combination of these why not and what ifs but there's questions that help you to to just i guess uh find potential answers 
And then there's questions that help you to find, uh, help you to invent potential things. And that makes sense. So those are the two kind of areas. And you can, you know, any of these, if you're trying to solve a problem, ask yourself this whole battery of questions. And I guarantee you will come up with more interesting hypotheses than you will if you just sit in front of a whiteboard or sit in front of a blank sheet of paper. So yeah, go ahead. Well, I'm just thinking, what if we, what if we go through each of these quicker and we just, you do the question, okay. you give one example, question, one example, and then let's go back to them. How's that sound? Okay. All right, so let's go through these questions really quick. What would an expert recommend you do and what's the opposite? Just ask that. So for example, back in the day, newspapers were struggling, not even that far back in the day, newspapers were struggling. The experts all said, you need to get better at your ads, you need to be more targeted. At the New York Times, they had a innovation committee that said, well, what if we actually didn't do ads and we charge people money for the content? Come up with a paywall. Everyone said it couldn't be done. Now New York Times is making billions of dollars. So what's the opposite of what the experts say or would recommend? Another is, what if you started with the end goal of everything worked out wonderfully? What would be the steps backwards from there to where you are now? So this, my favorite example of this is my career path. I wanted to write for Wired Magazine. Instead of saying, how do I get to Wired Magazine? I say, what's one step backwards from Wired Magazine? What's one step backwards from that? And then defining the steps that way allowed me to come up with a more clever way of writing for Wired. Another one is, what would someone with an extreme perspective on this need to do? So uh, real life example, bug spray maker wants to, to make better bug spray, expand their product line. Instead of asking people at the mall, what ideas do you have for better bug spray? They asked people who lived in shanty towns whose kids would die if the bug spray didn't work. What do we need to do to make the bug spray better? And the answer was, you don't want bug spray, you want lotion. You want to cover the whole body or you want oil. And that actually led to the idea, oil, that when the bug lands on it, it, uh, it actually gums up their, you know, their mouth sucker thing so they can't actually bite you. So what would someone with an extreme perspective, shantytown, not people at the mall? Another question, if no one could get in trouble, what would you do? Or even better than that, how would a psychopath solve this problem? So you have to suspend your moral judgment when you're doing this. And you might come up with some hypotheses. Well, psychopath would just kill everyone and then, then there'd be enough food. Great. You don't go with that idea necessarily, but you're never going to explore. You're cutting off possibilities if you don't explore that. What would that mean? What if we couldn't get in trouble? What would we do? Maybe something in that exploration actually can be brought back and combined into your process. Another, how would a pick a very different industry approach this problem? I like the ones my go-tos are, how would a ballet dancer approach this problem? How would a race car driver approach this problem? These come from real examples that, that I've heard of, but you know, how would a kid look at this problem? How would my mom who teaches sign language for deaf people look at this problem? Maybe you won't come up with answers, but you will certainly explore different areas than you would if you're just making a list on a whiteboard. If you had to use technology from hundreds of years ago, what would you do? So this one often helps you to get down to first principles if you already haven't, but how would you use technology from hundreds of years ago is a really interesting exploration. It really gets at, at another version of this question, which is if you had to use a tool meant for something else on this problem, what could you come up with? So this is getting into real creative territory that the, the skeptic in the room is not going to want to go through this question. But a favorite examples of this is, you know, the, the blister pack packaging that you get when you get headphones, it's like impossible to open. turns out that a can opener is a really good tool to use on it. You know, a knife is impossible. Ripping it is impossible. A can opener is great. So what if you had to use a can opener to solve this problem? As, you know, someone asked that question when they figured that out. If you had to use a different tool, how could you do it? 
Another one, if you could use science fiction future technology, what could you do? Favorite example of this is the Freakonomics guys. They actually got a lot of unfair criticism for this um, because some bloggers completely misconstrued what they were saying. So on the cover of Super Freakonomics, they, they have all these things like patriotic prostitutes and you know kids with terrible names and global cooling. So a bunch of bloggers said, Freakonomics guys say the planet is cooling instead of warming, which is not what they said. What they said is, you know, if the you know, things have gone too far already, we're already, the, the ship has sailed, the planet is warming. In the science fiction future, what could we do? Well, we could cool it down. What if you, ha you had the technology to cool the planet down? That's an interesting thought experiment. Um, and they actually interviewed some scientists that have some ideas that actually might, you know, cause some terrible side effects. The second order effects, as it were, would be important to, to resolve. But instead of stopping global warming, what if you had to, you had the technology to globally cool? Another question, if you had all the money in the world, how would you solve this problem? Money is no object. This is a version of the psychopath thing, but if you have all the resources you need, how would you solve it? That often will lead to an exploration that actually indicates something that you could do even without money that you just hadn't considered because you, you, know, you think that it's, uh, it's too far out there. There's the counterfactual question. If you replaced X with Y, what would happen? Again, the skeptic in the, the room or the cynic in the room is not gonna like this question. But, you know, we're, I actually don't have a good example of, of this, so maybe we can explore this a little bit later. But, you know, we're, we're trying to do real estate investing. If you ex replaced money with fish, what would happen? Maybe that's a ridiculous question, but maybe we start now thinking about, you know, marine stuff or, you know, I know that tuna fishing off of the coast of Somalia is an incredibly profitable industry. So what if investing in fishing boats instead of investing in real estate is actually like a really profitable venture? Fine. And then the last two questions that I love from this lateral thinking exploration tree, which is coming up with potential ideas for solving problems, not coming up with inventions necessarily, is what if you had to do this 100 times cheaper or simpler? If you had to dramatically reinvent the process so that it was so much simpler or cheaper that you had to really come up with something different? And what if you had to do this 10 times better so that it was so much better that every single person would switch to you versus whatever they're using? Because it's 10 times better, it leaves you no excuse. Or it's so much better that it's worth all of the investment and all of the thinking and all of the, the people you got to recruit in order to do it. That idea, what are the things that, that would qualify for that? End up helping you often come up with ideas that maybe they're not 10 times better, but they're much more interesting and more feasible than you think. So. Those are my favorite questions in this question tree. Um, and, uh, and all of them basically force you to consider things in a, in a lateral way. Well, you know, the very first thing it makes me think of is, have you seen those cards that IDEO put out for human-centered design? Where it's like you flip through these cards and it's all these like things about empathy and things about observation and things about whatever to help with innovation. I feel like I feel like this is like your new physical product that needs to exist so that teams can pull out the card deck and as they've brainstormed and they got out their own lists and then they get together and combine the lists and then they see what else they came up with and they finally run dry, then they need to pull out Shane's cards and get their set of smart cut cards out and, and flip the cards and, and ask these questions. I like right that. Um, I like that. It also that way it reinforces that this is a collaborative thing. It's a game now to come up with the opposite of what the expert would do. We're all in on that. We're not going to get scared when someone, you know, pushes back on that because now the game is this specific problem. I really like that actually. Thank you. <laughs> well, it was my next thought of like, A, I think it needs to be flashcards, but B, thinking about it as a game. And, and mm -hmm. because basically everything in groups is more fun as a game or a sport or right. Thinking yeah. about like, you know, could, could each one of these, like, 
hey, if you got nine people in a room, you split into groups of three. If you got six people, you split into groups of two or something. Like, could you make it a game? Like, think about all the dumb board games we played, Scategories or something growing up, right? Yes. Like, these these could be like a game of Scategories where the question is, if no one could get in, if no one would get in trouble, what could you do? And maybe there's like a clarification paragraph or something, right? And then yeah. the different teams have to write it down and they compare it all, which then everybody like votes and somebody gets points. But the byproduct is look at all these look at all these ideas that come up that people try just a little bit harder because, you know, there's a bag of Skittles in it for the team that wins or something. You know? Right. Well, even this categories thing is an example of, you know, if you had to use something meant for something else on this problem. So categories for problem solving brainstorming process, instead of the goal of being a game and coming up with, you know, words based on the letter, you're taking that game and transferring it over. It's a classic example of lateral thinking. You can even build on that, you know, if we were workshopping this and say, you also, you know, here's the cards and some of them say, and the answer has to start with the letter A. We can even draw on categories even more that forces you to really think different than you might have. Maybe it could even be a game where there's, you want to do like the advanced version, you have two decks of cards and uh, and one deck of cards adds a constraint. You know, what's if you had to use technology from hundreds of years ago and it has to start with the letter A or and, you know, it, the Pope has to approve or whatever. It could be really interesting. Okay, so everybody, if you'll just email Shane and get on the on the waiting list for the Smart Cuts Innovation Game, He's going to be coming out with that soon here and you'll be able to buy the physical coffee and play it at work. But, but that's actually, again, look at how you're building on it, right? The recombination there. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar at all with the YouTube show, YouTube series from Kirby Ferguson called Everything is Remix? I'm not. Oh, you would especially love right up my alley. Oh yeah. So good. He like, he goes through the ideas of like imitation and copying and then recombination of basically remixing things together and then just the natural evolution to forming something new that's different afterwards mm. um, of transforming it. But like he'll go through, he'll go through the value of inspiration from other people's stuff, you know, and he goes through all these shots in star Wars and which movies they are almost complete copies of. And he's showing them Whoa. right there on screen. He's got a whole one about all the things that Steve jobs ripped off from everybody else to make the iPhone, right? And he just, wow. and, it, and it's, it's fun because it's so visual, you know, and you're like, mm -hmm. you're not like taking somebody's word for it. You're looking at it yourself. And some of them you're like, ah, eh, that one's a bit of a stretch. And other ones you're like, that is like exactly a copy. He goes through the Tarantino movies. He goes through all these different things, right? And, wow. but just this idea of like emulation followed by remixing them as a natural progression towards transformation for, for something amazing afterwards, right? And anyways, I feel I, like, I feel like, you know, a couple episodes ago, I think, I think this is episode three of the Smart Cuts series here that was on the first principles of like, man, if I could boil everything down and have my whole team agree, these piles are objective facts. These piles are assumptions that need to be proven or disproven, right? If that, if we had that mm -hmm. as a starting place and then we were pulling out the Smart Cuts board game. Right. And we figure out like what the prize is, you know, this team gets a day off work or I don't know, just gets yeah lunch pot or just gets bragging rights. Who cares? Right. But anyways, I can just ah. see how these different things, like, I guess for me, it's starting to come more together. Why we did the four episodes leading up to this one of like, you got these tools in the tool belt, you like, you know, to me, it feels like, and I want you to correct me. It feels like 
almost like you want to do the first principles, breaking stuff down into like, what are the objective facts? What are the other, you know, disp- you know, what are the assumptions? What are the presumptions, right? Then do all this stuff. And then after you have whittled something down, you need, you need to like maybe then go on to second order thinking like phase two of the game. Once you pass this level, now we have to ask the second order thinking questions of, great, that solves the problem, but is it creating other ones? Is it creating, you know, Mm -hmm. some series of questions to figure out what might be unintended consequences of this? How might we be making our life harder or somebody else in the organization's life harder because we are solving it this way? Or I don't know, tell me if you see it differently. Yeah, I, it's, it's right on. It, it makes, I mean, breaking everything down like that and going through that process makes it easier to see, you know, you may not even need some of these crazy questions in order to see what you need to see by that point. So that's valuable itself. And turning that into, you know, a collaborative game is, uh, is really useful. I, I love the idea of turning that, of actually having a physical game that's, you know, th- that makes that game part literal, but that's exactly right. When you put all of that out and you can see it and you're all working from the same set of things, you know, the the facts, the principles, the assumptions, the question, the right question, then it it makes it a lot easier to, you know, to to come up with the right things and not find yourself down, you know, the wrong path. One thing that occurred to me, well, I'm taking notes as you're you're talking about this because uh, this is helpful for me as well. One thing that occurred to me is the actual recombination question itself is a really interesting one. You know, at the end of this question tree say, now take two of the ideas that you came up with before and combine them and see what happens. That's super interesting itself as a, as a question. So the, you know, I recombination, I, I take just in my own head almost for granted as this is what creativity is, is it's combining things, you know, and everything is a combination of something. Molecules are combinations of atoms and, you know, and so on and up. But actually you know the expanding and whittling down part of the expanding phase actually may be maybe should be specifically recombining so you've expanded the pool you have lots of stuff out there now remix some of them to uh, see if you can come up with something even better that's that's maybe a better way to even frame the workshopping you know, expand recombine whittle down yeah i love it well and you can see how like if this game had phases, right? And all of your Sherlock Holmes observation, empathy stuff beforehand, right? Has happened. And that's been confirmed on for the group before you proceed to the next one, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of this stuff comes with like a timer clock so that, you know, our our lovely friend on the team who just happens to be exceedingly long-winded named Jess, you know, has to shorten things, you know, like the the... Mm-hmm. The expand phase doesn't take five and a half hours. Like if I was running the show, it could, right? Because <laughs> that's my favorite yeah. part, you know? And like, you could see how it could... Anyways, it occurs to me that it, it could be an interesting guide to maybe lower the bar of like, people don't have to read, you know, think about how many books you've read and how many audiobooks I've listened to, right? And like the mm-hmm. practice and the mistakes of doing this wrong, whatever. Like in a way, what a smart cut it could be for helping teams of employees where you don't even have to go to the meeting, but you know, as long as they took, you know, as long as they played the Shane smart cuts game and then brought, and then brought the, you know, brought all the answers, right. Cause the, the answers get recorded. They could just bring you the boss, all the answers that the different teams came up with along. You could like, you could essentially get the, you know, two hour meeting in, 
in 12 minutes by just whipping through everybody's answers and see where they came to and, and see the thinking that led to it. And you don't even have to go to the meeting as a boss, you know? I feel like this needs and to be it like- gives you confidence that, right, that it's uh, no st stone has gone unturned and that the group has been focused on the right things. Well, and you don't have to wait for them to listen to this six hour series or however long this thing's going right. to end up, right? <laughs> 24 hour series, right? You don't have to, but more, I guess more to me is it could give me the faith that I don't have to rely on their memories to know, oh, now is the next, you know, to remember the 15 questions, to remember that it's this phase, then that phase. And like, you know, kind of that it's, it's like you talk about the law of constraints stuff, right? It's like, mm -hmm. it gives like giving them the flexibility to bring their whole brain to the process without having the potential defaults of, do they have enough meaningful repetitions to remember what the 15 questions are, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I, and you've brought this up a couple of times, the, the meaningful repetitions thing, like a way to smart cut that, right? Tools to, to make it so that you don't have to have, have developed that, you know, automatic way of thinking about things. For me, a lot of these questions, like now, after so many years of thinking about this stuff this way, like I do tend to go into this automatic, you know, lateral thinking mode, but, you know, for a long, and even now, like, especially new ones that I've, I've come up with, having the actual question is the thing, you know, actually pulling up my list and reading it is the thing that helps me to not have to like have this all be innate. Anyway, so I, I'm glad that you, that you brought that up. I, I was meaning to write that down last time, actually, the <laughs> the smart cut uh, for the meaningful repetitions, because we, we shouldn't have to spend 10 years, uh, you know, in preparation for being able to think like this to think like this. Well, and and my point is somebody like you who has spent the 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. If the requirement was that now everybody in your company who you want to be able to benefit from this needs to go through the same pain you went through to get here, mm -hmm. that's going to be a long ladder, right? And so right. this idea of if you want your if you want your company to have this competitive edge, what you can do to synthesize your 10 years because you because you know from the experience and study what the critical elements are, hence this whole mini series we're doing, your ability to shrink that. I mean, so I think about calculators, right? Even the math I did in high school, I, I look at how complicated it was and why we have to do this all longhand, right? And then later mm -hmm. in my career, I was, you know, I was in charge of tens of millions of dollars, partnering with this billionaire. And, and we had formed a small company that had partnered with in one case, a $30 billion company, in another place, a $50 billion company, like we were doing renewable energy, bringing small hydro over from France, okay? And wow. all of those investment decisions could have been done on an iPhone calculator. And in 90% of the time, they were done on an actual iPhone calculator, <laughs> right? We didn't, need yeah. any, we didn't need any equations with Greek letters in them. It's a simple, it's a simple, it was actually quite straightforward math. And I'm not saying that, you know, this applies to all fields. Astrophysicists and all sorts of people do need the most complicated math, right? right. But but that iPhone calculator, like I got to tell you, like my, some of those high school years, had I been able to track pick investment track, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of learning longhand algebra, would have been better spent helping me with the psychological concepts of discounting a future cash flow to know yeah. what price I can pay for it now, and ingraining those concepts in my brain, and then giving me the smart cut of an iPhone. <laughs> Give me a smart cut of a calculator mm -hmm. to to put the most mental energy into the probabilities instead of yeah instead of the equation that the calculator could do for me so quickly right 
Well, and I explored the calculator thing, uh, well, kids being given calculators versus memorizing times tables in, in chapter four of Smart Cuts. I haven't thought about this in a long time, actually. And one of the benefits of that strategy is, first of all, it's first is exactly what you're talking about. But the second thing, the hidden benefit is that when someone, so when you get more, you're, you're really interested in, the, in solving these investment problems and really understanding them. If that requires at some point you to learn certain kinds of math, you will be so much more motivated to learn it and to understand it and to understand the fundamentals that you will go back and do it, which no kid ever has had that kind of motivation for long division or, you know, whatever trigonometry. No one, like very few people just love the math for the math's sake that they're that motivated. But as soon as like, I know for me, as soon as I had to build forts, you know, I was really suddenly interested in the way the angles worked and what the right angles were for things, you know, and when my brother and I were trying to build a, uh, a go-kart, suddenly we were really interesting in how engines worked and, uh, you know, and, and much more interested in helping our dad out with, you know, fixing the car or whatever. And so that is the other benefit too, is like, you do need to know some underlying fundamentals of math in order to use the calculator. But once you can use the calculator, then use the tool. And then when you're working on something that requires you to learn more math, you'll be more motivated to learn the more math. The tool actually helps you to get further down the road so that you're working on interesting enough things that justify you money. So Shane, can you talk to us about the lollipop checklist? Yeah. So this is, uh, I alluded to this earlier, you're trying to, the, like the hypothesis that you're trying to get at is how to reinvent something. Then this checklist is very useful. It's also, you can use this at any time to, to basically take an idea or hypothesis you have and, and explore branches out from it. So in the way that we were kind of talking about recombination, but this is, a, I forget exactly where this comes from. I call it the lollipop checklist because the example that I've seen used over and over is basically things you can do with a lollipop. And, uh, but you can apply these to, you know, to anything. And basically what the lollipop checklist is, is say you have a, like a blank sheet of paper and you have a lollipop in the middle and you wanted to come up with different ideas for how you can, you know, build on the lollipop. You can draw little arrows out from this center lollipop to a bunch of different kinds of lollipops. You know, visual maybe is not as important, but say you want to, you know, your question is how do we make a more interesting, better selling lollipop? These six things can help you to come up with different ideas. And I think this goes all the way back to Osborne, who was the BBDO guy that comes up, came up with brainstorming, or at least it's sort of attributed to him as like the ultimate source uh, for this. But Basically, there's a combine is the first one. So take the thing you have, like a lollipop, and combine it with something else. Similar, you know, it's a different angle on stuff that we've already been talking about, but combine a lollipop with a Tootsie Roll, and you get a Tootsie Pop. Combine a lollipop with a flower, and you get a, you know, a lollipop with a flower in the middle. So that's, that's one avenue you can go down. Things you can combine a lollipop with. The second is modify. Change the shape of the lollipop. Make it square. Make it flat make it a star, make it, you know, upside down, whatever it is. So that's, that's one category. Then there's magnify the lollipop, make it really tiny, make it really enormous. So dum-dums, I don't know if you remember dum-dums. I always got them like when we'd make deposits at the bank and the, the like suction thing would bring us back our, you know, our deposit slip or whatever. And there'd be these little dum-dum lollipops in it. That's a childhood memory of mine, but a dum-dum is tiny lollipop. So make it tiny, make it huge. 
minimize is sort of a version of make it tiny, but instead of a lollipop, it's a make, what if you had little lollipop flavored like BBs, you know, little, little nerd ball things, you know, how could you minimize a lollipop and uh, come up with something substantially different? Then uh, there's substitute. So instead of a lollipop stick, you know, the thing on a stick, put it in a tube, put it, turn it into goop and, uh, and slurp it out. So like a gogurt lollipop, sure. And then there's a uh, rearrange. So rearrange would be actually, you know, I'm going to pull up one of my lollipop diagrams to, since I'm, I'm running out of steam on this uh, example, you know, rearrange would be put the lollipop on a necklace, make a, you know, a candy necklace out of it, or, you know, Put it, turn it into not a candy, but a wall decoration, you know, that sort of thing. So this list, to repeat them, is combine, modify, magnify, minimize, substitute, and rearrange. You can run any object through that list and come up with some pretty interesting ideas. And, and certainly it's better than, uh, than just what can you, how could you reinvent the lollipop? Like that open-ended question at the hypothesis stage is not very helpful uh, as something like a filter. So... You know, if we are doing something with a lollipop, we're trying to, you know, make a better lollipop that will, you know, that kids will enjoy and their parents will buy more without it making them sick or whatever the, you know, second order effects are accounted for, we might run lollipop through that list. And so you can do the same thing with any solution that you have invented that your hypothesis is, you know, we need to take this and change it in order to make it better that list is often a very good device for, for coming up with lateral ideas. So for me, sometimes when I hear lists like this, I'm like, oh, that totally makes sense for lollipops. But because I haven't spent enough time with the concepts, my brain, it doesn't make the bridge to how do I solve my problems at our business or at our charity or places like this. Can we, can we go through one of these, like whether it's a problem you once had it at Contently or whether something like, you know, your new projects going forward, can we pick something that you have either been through or going through and, and play this game for a minute? Yeah. Let's see. Off the top of my head, we're in the middle of this uh, lockdown quarantine from the COVID pandemic. And, you know, in March, all of my speeches for the year got canceled in the course of a few days, which was terrifying. And, you know, anyone else that's in the events business had the same thing happen to them. Among the bad things that are happening, it's, you know, it's a, a minor thing, but it is, it still sucks really bad. So there, everyone in the events industry started asking, how do we do these events virtually? And, you know, and I think a better question than that is how do you make a virtual event that, that people actually want to go to, you know, that's superior than, uh, than the normal virtual event that actually takes advantage of what a virtual event can do. So if you were to, to say, well, how do we take a virtual event and make it better so that people actually want to do it more than they'd want to do a, li a live event, you know, in person? Uh, we could apply the lollipop checklist to that. And uh, we could say, well, what if you combine the idea of a virtual event, you know, the typical webinar, it's either someone on a webcam or someone slides and you hear their voice and maybe there's some chat. What if you combine that with a game show? That's actually an extremely interesting idea. Um, I actually ended up doing this. That's why it's top of mind. I, I turned one of my client events into a game show. It was a, an innovation association. And so we did Who Wants to Be an Innovator? And it actually was a combination of prices, Right rules, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire rules, and there was there were prizes. Sylvia, who's my my wife and my uh, creative collaborator on our TV projects, 
she put on a blue wig and was the announcer. So she announced the prizes while I did things on the back end with the, the contestants. And, uh, you know, we had music and everything. So combining a couple of game shows with a webinar ended up being like a pretty interesting idea. You know, next thing on the lollipop checklist, modify. You know, that one's a little bit uh, harder. Like how do you modify the form of a, a virtual event? But one that comes to mind that I've, I've seen done particularly well is uh, instead of having it be a, you know, webinar where I'm talking at the camera, turn it into a Slack, an all-day Slack uh, ask me anything event. So it's still an event, but you're taking advantage of the asynchronous thing. You're taking advantage of the not, you know, you can be anywhere in the world. And, uh, and then you take advantage of what the internet is particularly good at, which is saving everything. And, uh, and so turning it into a, a Slack event. And there's actually a new company called circle.so that has really cool kind of Slack-like uh, software now that, that we discovered in the course of, of planning something like this for a friend who was doing a virtual event that actually lets you embed almost like a comment thread onto different pages that uh, is like a, a Slack thread, but embedded on, on different pages. You keep your profile across pages. You can even do online courses this way. So a different and clever way to do a virtual event that, that people appreciate because they, they can pop in and out in a way that the internet is good for. Magnify, you know, you could say, well, what if we wanted to make the world's largest virtual event or the world's tiniest virtual event? I have a, a friend who put on a, a big virtual charity event that the goal was to get a million people and to have it be like the TED of, uh, of virtual events. And that goal and, and sort of that level of magnification, it's a version of what if this had to be 10 times bigger or whatever. But what it necessitated was a bunch of things that ended up, what he did was a Simulive event, which is basically he got all the speakers to record their talks. They did post-production on the talks and they were all 10 minutes only. Um, so modifying it for you know the internet attention span but it was like 10, 10 minute talks. So fairly short event, but like kind of a half day summit. But each of those talks were highly post-produced. Not all of them, but like the, the, the best ones, they had enough time to do this. And so it like this one, actually anyone who's listening to this should look up Seku Andrews, S-E-K-O-U. He's a spoken word poet. This is another example of combine, actually. They, they got a spoken word poet to do this talk on kind of rethinking the idea of success so it was like, it turned into the best TED talk you can imagine because it was spoken word poet giving this talk about success, but where they, they did all of these filters on his voice and on him. So it's like him walking around in front of the camera, but they chopped it up like it was this crazy music video. So it was like a music video version of a TED talk. It was incredible. You should look it up. What, what was the whole program called? The program was called uh, Mind Shift. Mind Shift. So, you know, as an example of magnify, but but also there was sort of this rearrange element um, and this combined element. It was like, if you could make someone's, you know, TED talk look like a music video, what could you do? Super interesting. Substitute, I, I don't, oh, actually, you know, a substitute of like, what if you were to do substitution with a virtual event? Well, substitute the live talk for a pre-recorded video. Then you, you eliminate a lot of potential errors. You can have it look exactly right. And then you can do a lot of interesting things with the in-between space. You know, the MC did a lot of really cool stuff because they didn't have to worry about the video. Okay, that's an example of that. Rearrange, I, you know, I would have to think about how rearrange might make sense for a virtual event. But, you know, yeah, have to think about that. But, but a very clever version of a virtual event that I saw or I was part of recently made use of the, the feature on Zoom that allows you to send people into breakout uh, groups. Oh, 
So it was a dinner. This guy who does these virtual dinners, not well now virtual dinners, Chris Chembra, he does these in-person dinners where he gets people from, you know, different walks of life to come cook pasta together and to share what they're grateful for. And I got invited to one of these and then the pandemic hit. And so then, you know, I, I go to this virtual dinner where we all have to make Italian food on our own. And then instead of the normal event that he put on, he kept on throwing us into these different groups of three people with a prompt. So instead of going around the table doing his whole program, it's like I'm in the room with, you know, two people and, uh, and we have to all answer this question. And then it kicks us out of the room just as soon as we've made friends. And then we get thrown in another room with three people. And he curated the questions in a way that it was impossible to go through this event without like tearing up by the end. And you felt like you were so close. And, and, and it wasn't one linear event. It was this constant rearranging of the chairs. So, and something that is, is actually way more possible to do logistically over Zoom than in, you know, at a real dinner, like, okay, now everyone go to different corners of the room, like actually rearrange the chairs. That is, uh, is actually much more distracting and potentially a nightmare. You can't force people, if people are in the middle of a conversation, it's like, all right, ring the bell, everyone leave their chairs, go to the next thing. That doesn't always happen because people are really engaged, but the, the Zoom, the virtual thing, like kicks you out and sends you to the next room. So... That's an example that I don't, you know, the checklist, the lollipop checklist wasn't gone through for that, but you can see these are examples of ways that, uh, that people have redone virtual events. And if you had sat down with that checklist, you could have come up with all of those probably pretty quickly, or at least versions of those. And more, more than that, the worst virtual events right now are most of them, but they're the ones where it's a person talking to a webcam as if they're giving a keynote speech and, and their jokes, you can't hear the audience laugh. So there's no social cues. So the jokes sound like they are dead and awful. And then the speakers get anxious, even if they're really good speakers. And, you know, they're against a, a boring background in their house. So they, they can't even, you know, use their hands and walk around and do any of that. Uh, they're just, you know, porting, you know, a speech to a webcam in you know in the worst possible way and even worse than that are the ones that have uh, a live chat on the side where if you're not careful people start getting real nasty in the comments and the speaker doesn't even know it i saw a virtual event where speaker said something that someone in the comments off and then the comment thread just turned into this huge argument about the validity of that person being mad about the validity of the thing this guy said meanwhile the guy can't even see it and so, you know, awful way to do an event. And, and unfortunately, the, the organizers of this event, there was a lot more that was awful about this event, but the organizers did not go through any kind of creative process for trying to, you know, to ask the right questions for how to do the event better. So I don't know that that's the perfect example of this, but that's the kind of thing that you go through. And as you saw, not all six of these leads to good ideas. A couple of them, it's like, ah, oh, what do I do with that, with minimize? What do I do with substitute? But, uh, but it doesn't matter because a couple of those are super interesting, like the game show and like the rearrange the chairs one. So helpful. I, I really appreciate that. Taking it and the, the application, obviously putting you on the spot and getting you to try and do a whole creative process with, with no <laughs> sure. prep and do it quickly, right? But, you know, I, I'd be interested in your thoughts. We, we've covered so much already in the first five episodes, but whether it's the Sherlock Holmes observations or the first principles thinking of breaking it down, um, to objective facts and what are our assumptions and the second order thinking and this, you know, kind of looking at the structural things that can help the brainstorming and, and the kind of questions that can push lateral thinking. And I guess for me, my, ne my next question for you is if, like, we've looked at it so granularly in a bunch of ways, 
if I am looking at it, you know, using all these together, do you have any maybe overarching comments about, okay, I am trying to do the smart cuts thing of instead of like waiting in line and getting my finger stepped on, on the ladder, on the supposed to ladder of what I want to accomplish. I'm trying mm -hmm. to invent my own ladder so I can go straight to the top as you know, where there's nobody I have to wait for in the line ahead of me, or there's, I get to skip unnecessary work or skip unnecessary effort. Right. Do you have any thoughts more like if we zoomed out and we looked at all that's been covered so far in terms of inventing my own ladder? Yeah. So the overarching idea is that doing things the way that they have been done is unlikely to get you anywhere faster or you know more satisfyingly or better than everyone else and it is the longer things have been done the way that they're done the more likely it will take you longer to you know climb to the top of wherever you want to go um so that's that's the the basic idea as it comes to sort of building your ladder to you know careers or accomplishments or whatever and i think there's you know you, you used the phrase skipping unnecessary work earlier in this episode i think a key zoom out principle is pay attention to what's necessary work versus unnecessary work and you know and and figure that out and this is, you know, in, in many ways, the first principles thing becomes really relevant here. You know, what are the things that get you, you know, what, what you want? And, you know, one of the lateral thinking questions for building on hypotheses literally was the pick the end state and then back up the states before that. What are the requirements, you know, to manage a billion dollar hedge fund? What are the requirements to be a feature writer for Wired Magazine? You know, those kinds of things what would be the minimum that I would need to have accomplished in order to get that? Well, what's the minimum that, what are the ways that you could accomplish that? What's the minimum, you know, and, and back up. Those are all, you know, things to get at this idea of, you know, there's not the one right way in quotes to get somewhere is going to be potentially the slow way. And, and not everything in that path is necessary. So identifying what's necessary and what's not. And I would say that the danger, the warning I would give people when thinking about this in terms of their own sort of career ladder, or if you're thinking of a ladder, like making progress towards something, is that uh, certain fundamental things are should be counted as necessary work. So if, if we're using the math example, memorizing times tables, memorizing formulas, memorizing different algebraic expressions, you know, having the quadratic form, form, equation in your back pocket is unnecessary work if you own a calculator. However, understanding how math works is necessary work. So, and so that's the, the thing that I would say is getting to a place where you are, you know, you're at a level of accomplishment and then being unable to perform there is uh, is going to be counterproductive to you in the future. If you know I can work my way into the door at Wired Magazine and get assigned a feature story, and then I cannot pull off a good feature story, I am never going to write for them again. So it's uh, you know I you can edit this out if uh, if it's too much for for your audience, but you know I, I wrote about presidents of the United States in Smart Cuts and and how. Data is very clear that people vote based on perceived leadership abilities, not political experience. And in fact, someone with less political experience is likely to win over someone with more political experience because there's less history to pick at. There's less of them potential stubbornness of doing things the old way when people want change. So statistically, it's more likely for a Donald Trump character to win over a Hillary Clinton character 
because he is injecting himself into politics after establishing uh, leadership credibility in business rather than someone who's been you know, on the political stage for ages. And actually what Hillary did when she ran for senator after having no elected experience, but she was leveraged her credibility as a first lady and things she accomplished there to win as a senator against more experienced politicians. The thing, though, is you don't want to become president if you're not – if you don't have the expertise in how government works or you're going to spend your whole presidency fighting off or making excuses for bad decisions unless you then put together a cabinet and a group of people who can make good decisions and you don't fire them all the time. So one of the things that you know Trump has run into is he, he hacked the ladder to becoming president. He used you know everything that – it was a very smart way to become president, but then as president – you now need to be able to run a country, which is very different than getting to president. Presidential historians that I interviewed for that chapter talked about how the skill set, one of the great ironies is the skill set of becoming president is very different than the skill set of being president. And so, you know, best case scenario, you have someone who is skilled enough to become president, but really their expertise lies in listening to people and figuring out how to solve problems. That's not the same thing as being good at, at getting people fired up about you. So anyway, you can edit that out if you want, but there's, that's the warning is uh, you need to do some work. You know, Eisenhower is an example that I actually like to use in that he's a very highly rated president. He was never a politician before he was president, zero years of political experience, but a lot of years in military experience and in being a general. And there's some politics in the military, but he, you know, he had managed big, big organizations with lots of bureaucracy and lots of obnoxiousness, and, and he had to work with people and be very clever in order to help win World War II. Now, Eisenhower was not the greatest president. He did a lot of like very bad things in Latin America. You know, he used some like war tactics that were, I think, unbecoming of a you know a, a leader of a, the supposedly world at peace. But he was very good in a lot of areas of government. Besides that. Um, and so he had established that he was good at management, basically, in a way that, that made it make sense and made him a very successful president, except in some of the areas that I have my personal gripes about. Um, so anyway, that's the warning. But, but in general, it's, yeah, if you're trying to build your ladder to something, the way everyone else gets there is going to be the way that everyone else is competing to get there. So why compete on that front? Why not go through a more thoughtful, you know, scientific method type process to figure out a smarter way to get there and you know make sure that once you're there you can hang but uh, but that's that's the overarching sort of advice that I would give and and really the difference between this series and and the book smart cuts is uh, smart cuts is actually more about it establishes the lateral thinking stuff in uh, you know not nearly as deep a way as we have in the series which is great it establishes that and then it goes really through different ways that you can approach getting to where you need to go more quickly without the unnecessary work. That's really a lot of the focus of the book. And, and you're learning some of these lateral thinking styles and principles in the meantime. You know, it's funny where I thought you were going to go with that was Obama and how kind of coming out of nowhere, he didn't have this deep experience in the public eye to be criticized because hardly anybody knew what he'd done in Chicago. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think part of that whole conversation that occurred to me is kind of like that Albert Einstein quote, at least it's attributed to him of like, things should be as simple as possible, but no simpler. Yeah. You know? Interesting. And, and like, <clears throat> it is interesting because I think, I think doing this mini series together has really helped me realize how many of the 
natural blocks to doing it the smart cuts way is is ego or self-identity or things because not only do we want the result we want the respect we want the respect for having gotten it there or at least i do sometimes yeah. you know or yeah. and i want the acceptance from from the they in the they say you should do it this way right and it really comes down to some hard questions of like do you want to do it their way um, and take 30 years and and hopefully you get there and hopefully you still have their respect when you get there and you you know you look and smell the way that they want you to or are you happy with just getting the result even if you don't get their admiration you get the result and some of those other questions here right because you know sometimes we actually have to we do have to decide because you yeah. can't actually have both and and sometimes you know what's tricky about that is sometimes having people respect you and on your side is a necessary thing you need that in order to get to where you need to go but i think we overestimate how important that is and and in general if you are working on something interesting and meaningful and you have momentum you will be able to attract the allies you need and often it is the person who goes against the common way of doing things that ends up getting the most voracious allies you actually see this you know any surprise political candidate, including Obama, including Trump, including Andrew Yang, including, you know, Abraham Lincoln, are, they tend to be people who are going against some, you know, norm, which is what gets people more excited about them. So that, but that being said, I do think that we, we reinforce in a lot of our stories as a culture, that it is the respectable thing to do to break your back in you know in accomplishing what you need to do we respect the person who you know who does the back breaking work more than the person who does the you know the brain breaking work and that gets reinforced i think in a lot of our stories that we tell which is unfortunate i don't i, I can't tell you why but i've noticed and once i say this you will notice this so many movies have a version of this where the answer is uh where the the moral of the the movie at the end is what's in your heart is the right answer. You know, it's a, uh, you know, in every Marvel movie, it's like this in every, I forget which one I just saw where it's like, there's this dilemma of, you know, doing the thing that you think you're supposed to do and then doing, going with your gut or going with your heart. And, uh, you know, and at the end, you know, the, the good guys prevail and there's some, you know, recap conversation where the, you know, the wise person is like, see, you went with your heart. You trusted your feelings. It's sort of like the, the Luke Skywalker thing. It's like, no, the force is, uh, you know, you put away your computer to target, you know, the, the Death Star porthole and you used the force to let your feelings guide you. And that's the moral of so many movies. And I'm not saying that your feelings are unimportant, but I'm saying that that's the wrong lesson. Like your feelings... Can't, and also the force is not like that. The force was made up, you know, and superpowers are, are made up. If you supplant your brain with just going off of feeling, then you're rolling the dice. You know, feelings are really important. And, uh, you know, and using your heart is important because they often point you towards, you know, the moral rights and wrongs of, you know, our actions, which is extremely important. They often point us toward, you know, pattern recognition. Often our instincts are like, wait a second, I feel like something's off because of your pattern recognition, you know, or you get angry about something and, and that's important to pay attention to because that means this is important and valuable, but having your feelings be the answer is a, you know, is, is a potentially very counterproductive thing. And that's the lesson in so many movies, which is like this weird societal thing. It's like, 
we don't value then the person who thinks harder about this problem. We value the person that just rushes in, you know, to battle without thinking because they're like, F it. Uh, like, that's a weird thing for us to value as a society. And, and so I think, you know, we should value more the, you know, the Yoda character who is like, no, the force helps me to stink a lot for a thousand years, you know, on my little planet so that I give have the wisdom for how to train you to do the right things rather than like, oh, I just feel the right things and I trust that I'm right about my feelings every time. I don't know, does that make sense what I'm kind of getting at? Yeah, I feel like it, it's it's the problem with generalizations, right? You know, mm-hmm. the balance beam of like any virtue taken to excess becomes a vice kind of thing or yeah. to our detriment. It's like for people who are in bondage to everybody else's approval, they probably do need a lot more of that. For the mm-hmm. ambitious types who maybe have uh, grown up skateboarders and already uh-huh. and already discount authority in what they say, you know, maybe we need a little more, right? Right. Where this right. like we blanket need to pay attention to our feelings. Yeah. Yeah. This blanket statement of always go with your heart, right? You know, always go with your gut. Unfortunately, I've personally lost very large amounts of money of mine and other people's <laughs> doing stupid yeah. stuff like that, right? Which yeah. is hence the reason that for me. You know, the the balance beam means getting more back on the list and listening to the negative Nancy and and checking mm-hmm. my ego at the door and right where yep. those really intelligent, creative folks who have, for whatever reasons, nature, nurture, whatever, have exceeding amounts of self-doubt. Right. And maybe natural tendencies towards conformity. They probably do need a movie like that to get them closer to being on the balance beam. And these over. Like these overgeneralizations without specific thought and consideration of the current facts and observation of the current facts stop are, are so easily untrue, right? Yes. Yeah. You know, and it actually, it, it comes back to that thing that we talked about in this episode about expanding the pool of hypotheses and ideas and then whittling it back. If you are a psychopath and you have no considerations for the, you know, the morals or the, you know, the harm or the second order effects that could happen, then, you know, you could easily say, well, I'm going to build my own ladder to something and who cares how many bodies are left, you know, in the, in the path behind me, the, the moral lens of how you feel or, you know, your values or virtues that you subscribe to can help you to whittle down, you know, that pool of possibilities to things that, that you should should do. Or, you know, on the other hand, I think that, like you're saying, if you you need someone or something to kick you into uh, a place where you're willing to explore outside of the way everything is done, then inspiration, then, you know, strong emotion and strong feelings or questions that force you to do this uh, is what can help you to expand. And then you already have the natural pullback, you know, to keep you from going off the cliff thing in place. But uh, but yeah, I I do think that personality will, you know, put different members of, you know, of our team in different places when it comes to that. But, but the, yeah, life is not so simple as working hard is the only way to respectfully accomplish something. And, you know, and paying your dues is required to, to be successful. And yet we treat each other that way. And we have great stories about that. And life is not so simple as trust your feelings are, you know, or, you know, it's not so simple as feelings don't matter because that's also not true. Yeah. It's like you have to be, you have to be willing to be criticized, right? You have to be willing to be disagreed with to not just follow the rut, get in line and follow the rut and wait your turn, right? Yep. 
Yep. And that's, you know, that's the safe path and it's the easy path, but it's, you know, if your goal is safe, easy, and, you know, go with the flow, then you should do that. That's actually the smart thing for you. Don't ruffle the feathers. If your goal is to get there faster or to do something better, then you're by nature going to have to do something different, which will ruffle feathers. Well, can you, can you kind of sum up episode five for us and give us a sneak peek on episode six? Okay, so episode five, wow, that was this one, right? Yeah. <laughs> yep, episode five is about forming strong hypotheses. It's about, not necessarily strong, but lots of hypotheses. It's about you know brainstorming, thought exploration, all the ways you can use lateral thinking to come up with creative ideas, but that's not the end of the scientific method. You know, The next episode, we're going to explore really the whittling down process in a deeper way, coming to the right conclusions testing hypotheses and and really using thought experiments in particular to test hypotheses. So at a certain point, you may need to go collect data. You may need to actually run experiments, but you can use thought experiments and clever ones that employ lateral thinking themselves to help you figure out if your hypotheses are, are bad or not. And, and so that's the next episode, mental models for trying to disprove hypotheses so you can come to the right conclusions and not fool yourself. And, you know, and that's the end of the, you know, the scientific method. But it, all of this establishes a launch pad for us to get into you know, maybe a couple of other things that, that we'll explore together. But certainly for anyone who's listening to this, there's a lot of places you can take these ideas once once we've gone through the next episode. I love it. As always, thanks for so much time. And uh, yeah, thank you, everybody. Please tune in for episode six.